If you have your Bible or uh, maybe a phone or device of some sort, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Many of you ladies here have born children, and certainly when little babies are born, um, people who come around have lots to say, don't they? Sometimes good, sometimes a little bit awkward, maybe. And when they say things, um, whether you want to or not, you think about it, at least for a moment, huh? She's beautiful. He looks just like your daddy. Oh, goodness, he's going to be a big fella. So even just for a moment, you think about it. She's pretty, huh? I wonder what she'll look like when she grows up. Yeah, he does kind of look like my daddy. Is, is that a good thing? A big fella. Is that a fat joke? Or maybe he's going to play ball one day. People are always saying things about the babies that we hold in our hands. Well, we have a story in the Gospel of Luke about what was said to Mary and Joseph about the baby she held in her hands. And it wasn't so much how cute he was. It wasn't anything about how big he was. It was some incredible things that this boy was going to become. So let's take a look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We've been looking over the last couple of weeks at this Christmas story. We saw the sovereignty of God in the simplicity of the birth of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, of the simple retelling of the birth of Christ. But we camp down on the incredible sovereignty of God in the midst of those very simple, even frustrating circumstances for Joseph and Mary. God was at work. Last week, we took a look at the significance of the birth of this baby. In chapter 2, verse 10, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. His birth, very simple. But the significance, a Savior has been born and we saw the responses to this news. The shepherds, in verse 15, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. So they came in a hurry. And we encouraged us all, especially those of you who have never put your faith in Jesus, to be like the shepherds and go in a hurry to find this baby boy. We saw the response of, we might call them the crowd, in verse 18, and all who heard of it wondered at the things which were being told them by the shepherds. And we noted that that word wondered is oftentimes just used of people who wonder at what Christ has done. They're amazed at his miracles. But it doesn't necessarily say anything about their giving their lives to him. And we wondered if that might be true of some of us. We're amazed at the story of Jesus. We, we wonder at the lights of Christmas. 
maybe even enjoy the music, but never have we gotten beyond that to being like the shepherds who went straight to find this baby. We looked at the response of Mary, who when the shepherds came and said, let us tell you what the angel said to us, she pondered these things in her heart. And then we closed with the shepherds again. We said they were certainly never the same. Having met Jesus, they went back, but glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Well, this morning, we want to look at the insights from an old man. I was thinking about it this morning and thought, maybe I'll title this sermon, Simeon Says. Not Simon Says. But Simeon says, what did this old man say about this baby in Mary's arms? We'll pick it up in verse 21. We'll really get going in verse 25. When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was in Jerusalem, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here apparently is an ordinary man of extraordinary devotion. He's recognized by Luke for his character. And we might say the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Wouldn't you love it to be said of you that he, that she was righteous he was devout, that the Holy Spirit was upon him, was upon her. He was a wonderful man. In verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said. So here it is. Uh, ladies, you walk in and you got baby in your arms and here comes an old man. Sometimes you get nervous maybe when it's old men and coming putting their hands on your baby. You're like, has he washed his hands lately? You love it when you're sitting in a restaurant and people come up and put their hands on your baby's head, and you're thinking, please get your hands off my baby. And then again, they say the craziest things sometimes. Well, here's old Simeon. Honey, can I hold your baby? She grabs this baby. He grabs this baby. Holds him in his arms. Now... Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace 
according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What if somebody said that about your kid? Here's a few things maybe that we learn from Simeon's words. Once you see Jesus, you can face death. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 29, now Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. We don't know how much longer after this meeting with the baby Jesus, but apparently soon after Simeon went home, breathed his last, and went straight into the presence of God Almighty. Friends, death is approaching for every single one of us. Not one of us will escape it, of course, unless the Lord returns. Can you face it in peace? Or does it frighten you to no end? What will become of you? I'm not so sure we even skip out of consciousness when we pass from death, from life to life. Does it scare you? Does it frighten you? Have you made peace with it? Have you made peace with God in such a way that you can now depart in peace? You cannot face it alone. Simeon believed that now that he had come face to face with Jesus Christ, he could depart in peace. We sing, and I love it, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I stand. For the one who knows Jesus Christ, there is not to be any fear of death. And it's because, and maybe we might say this is the second thing, Jesus is God's salvation. Why could Simeon say it? Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding in his hands this baby boy and believes this to be the means of salvation. In these days, it's not always welcome language. But a question like, 
have you been saved? Still remains relevant. Salvation is a biblical word. And thus, it's a very relevant word for all of us. The Bible is very, very clear that every one of us needs to be saved. Needs to experience salvation. Now, there's lots of things wrapped up in that. But it is the forgiveness of our sins that we have committed against God. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now get this, if you've never heard this, Jesus Christ lived a holy, righteous, perfect life for you. Then of course he went and he died upon a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He took upon himself the wrath of God in your place and for your sins. And when you come to him and put your faith and your trust in him, there are two magnificent things at least that happens. One, because he died for your sins, your sins are forgiven. But then here's another. That perfect righteousness of Jesus that he earned through his holiness is counted to you. Thank you, Pfeiffer. You and I must be righteous. We say here in Texas, we ain't. Not a one of us. Anybody want to raise your hand? That you have never sinned? All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Things we think about, the things we say, the things we feel, the things we do, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in this baby boy comes salvation. Comes the forgiveness of all of our sin and comes a righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves. The fancy word in the New Testament for this is justification. It's God declaring you to be righteous even though you're not. Say, oh, Mitch, that theology stuff. Folks, this is the gospel. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to a person who has no righteousness in and of themselves is such good news. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I can't trust this, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, me and my efforts to be righteous in and of myself, to please God, to earn his favor through my good works, all other ground is sinking sand. It's Christ who is the salvation which God has provided. That's why Simeon could say, I can depart in peace because I have come to know his salvation.
if you had asked Simeon, hey, old man, how is a person saved? How does a sinful guy like me get right with a holy God? He would not have said, law. This is a faithful old covenant man here. This is a faithful Old Testament guy, if you will. One guy described him as the best that the Old Testament washed up on the shore. This is a good, righteous, devout man. And you would ask him, how how are we saved? How do we experience salvation? He would say to you, it's not through the keeping of the law. None of us could keep it. It's through the gift of God's salvation, which is this boy. Have you trusted in him? Another thing he says, which is pretty awesome. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This was fairly new stuff. It had been hinted at by the angels over there in chapter 2, verse 10. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Some think maybe when the angels were making that proclamation to these Jewish shepherds, that maybe they simply, when they meant all the people, that they meant all the people of Israel, all the Jewish people of which these Jews or these shepherds were were part. I think, if anything, maybe it's double entendre, that, that maybe they could have had that in mind, but they also had something else in mind. And I think as we get further into the Gospel of Luke, especially as it begins right here. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for all the Jews. It's for all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. The glory of your people, Israel. For those of you who like this kind of stuff, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was written by a Jewish tax collector. We know him by the name of Levi. Or Matthew, he was a tax collector. Which, if you were a Jewish tax collector, you were hated by your own people. You were lumped in the tax collectors and sinners. Because you were collecting taxes from your own people to give to the Romans. Anyway, Jesus comes into his life, completely changes his life, and ultimately Matthew will be one of the apostles and he will write the Gospel of Matthew to a Jewish audience, trying to encourage them, I think, on the whole. Their question may have been, if Jesus is the king, then where's the kingdom? So Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience to tell them that indeed Jesus is the king and his kingdom is here in part and will be in fulfillment later. Mark we believe was written by Mark from Rome to Christians who were suffering. 
They were going through a hard time because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe they were tempted on giving up. And Mark, among other things, writes to them to present Jesus Christ as the quintessential disciple. In Mark's gospel, there are a handful of characters. There is Jesus, who always goes God's way. There are the scribes and the Pharisees, who never go God's way. And there's a group in the middle who sometimes go God's way and sometimes don't. Who are they? It's you and me. It's the disciples. And Mark is writing to present Jesus Christ as the quintessential disciple who always goes God's way. And and God's way is a life of service to God and others that may well get you killed. Remember, Jesus said it in Mark 10, 45. I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. But don't worry, because God will raise you from the dead. And so part of what Mark is doing, I believe, is encouraging God's people, you and me, to stay faithful to Jesus and follow him on God's way, even when it gets hard and even when it gets difficult. Luke. Luke is writing. He's the only Gentile author we have in our Bible. 66 books in the Bible, 64 of them are written by Jews. Two of them are written by a Gentile, Luke. The Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And this Gentile, one of his burdens is to show that Jesus is not only the Savior of Israel, but he's the Savior for the whole wide world. He's the Savior of the rich and the poor. He's the Savior of men and women. He's the Savior of repentant righteous people and repentant unrighteous people. He's the Savior of tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the like. And He's the Savior of red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. All the peoples of the world. Interesting note for those of you who like this kind of stuff. Maybe I've lost half of you. It's all right. Matthew takes his genealogy. Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, he takes his genealogy back to Abraham and David, because he wants to show his Jewish audience that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. He's the one. Luke, a little bit later, is going to take his genealogy all the way back. Chapter 3, verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He's going to trace Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam. Not just back to David and not just back to Abraham, but to go all the way back to Abraham or to Adam, who was created directly by God, because he's trying to show that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of Abrahamic promise and Davidic promise to the nation of Israel, he's the fulfillment of all God began to do with all the peoples of the earth from the very beginning. This has implications, I think, for you and me who aren't Jews. We had no promises. Paul, reflecting upon the Israelites in Romans chapter 9, 
He's speaking of the Israelites. He says, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises? Whose are the fathers? Meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From whom is the Christ? Jesus was Jew who came from the Jews. Paul says, they had it all. And in other places, he says of we Gentiles, we had none of it. We had no promises from God. And yet, this baby has come to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We rejoice in that, that this salvation has come to us. We sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. He's the light of revelation to the Gentiles. The glory of your people Israel. Indeed, all of the promises to the Jewish people in all of their anticipation. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians that in him, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. God promised and God did it. Now, that's good stuff. And Joseph and Mary in verse 33 thought it was good. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. But Simeon goes on. And if what he said earlier was about a man who had found peace, here he's going to say a few things that portend judgment for some. Simeon blessed them, said to Mary, his mother, Behold, imagine, imagine an old man grabbing your baby and saying this. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from every heart for many hearts may be revealed. Quickly, the fall and rise of many. Jesus is going to be the great divider. He's going to represent a crossroads in the life of those that encounter him. He will be the kind of person that you can't be neutral with. And some, Simeon says, will fall. And others will rise. This is the Gospel of Luke. We've been studying the book of Acts on Sunday mornings as well. And it's Luke volume 2. And we've seen it over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. As the Gospel is proclaimed, what happens? Some believe. When the Gospel is preached, they hear it. And it is, it is glory to them. They hear of God and His love who sent Jesus to be a Savior for them. And they hear the news that they can be forgiven by God and declared righteous and adopted into His family. And that is just... Oh, 
And they say like that Philippian jailer did, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they turn to him. They believe in him. They trust in him. They put their faith in him. They, in the words of Simeon, they rise. But we have seen also that there are others. That they hear the message and they want nothing to do with it. Because it absolutely humbles anybody who would believe it. To come to Jesus Christ, you must confess yourself to be a sinner and unable to save yourself. And so the strong and mighty will come crashing down. They will fall. They will refuse to believe it. They will turn away from him and say, I want nothing of him. This is a gospel, a part of the gospel, you all, that we must affirm and we must communicate. We don't want to. Because when we talk about this kind of thing, that Jesus Christ is God's salvation and what you do with him will determine your eternal eternity. If you will humbly come to him, confessing yourself to be a sinner and, and trusting in him, you will rise. If you reject him, you will fall into judgment. That kind of talk doesn't go so well in the 21st century, and really it hadn't gone so well for two millennia. I'm reminded, though, of Jeremiah the prophet. It stings for a guy like me. But maybe it does for all of us who have been entrusted with this gospel. Listen to Jeremiah. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everybody, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Hey, everything's cool, everybody. You're not perfect, and God understands. There's no judgment to come. There's no hell. Everything's cool. There's peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. That time I will punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Man. We've been on Friday mornings, me and some of the men studying through 2 Corinthians. 
And uh, the Apostle Paul, chapter 4, reflecting on this amazing new covenant ministry of the gospel that had been entrusted to him, he said, therefore, since we have this ministry, having received mercy, we do not lose hope, lose heart. We do not lose heart. For we, oh shoot, how did he say it? We have rejected the things hidden because of shame. We do not walk in craftiness, nor do we adulterate the word of God. The point seeming to be that there were, Paul had some opponents there in Corinth that were giving him heck. And they were men who walked in deceitfulness and craftiness. And they adulterated the word of God so that they could easily gain a hearing. And Paul said he would have nothing of it. We're not like those who walk in craftiness. Who adulterate the word of God. But he says we manifest the truth. In another place earlier in 2 Corinthians, he had said, we are not like many who peddle the Word of God. To peddle the Word of God is to change it up, to make it easier to hear so that people will like what you have to say. He says, we are not like many who peddle the Word of God, but as from sincerity, as from Christ, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul said, we're not going to peddle it. We speak in the sight of God. We give an account to Him. Many are going to fall because of this boy. He's a sign to be opposed. That doesn't sound right or it doesn't sound good, especially if your mama listening. And indeed, if you know the story, they will ultimately abuse him, mock him, scorn him, and crucify him. Why? Because he said things like this, you are of your father the devil. He said, whatever is born of flesh is flesh. You must be born again. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't get in. He said, the prostitutes can come in. The preachers can't. And they didn't like what he had to say. And ultimately, they nailed him to a cross. Verse 35, a sword will pierce even your own soul. This is, a, we think, a parenthetical statement that he says to her that, Mary, you love this boy, you hold him in your arms, but... Even your own soul is going to experience incredible pain. You're going to hurt so badly you will wish that you have died. One fellow wondered what that Mary may have thought. What could this possibly mean? What could this possibly mean that a sword is going to pierce even my own soul? Some 35 or so years later, she would learn. 
and he will reveal the hearts of many. He will pull back the covers on every heart. Judgment is ultimately going to be in this boy's hands. Man, Merry Christmas, huh? Merry Christmas. Friends, I do not want to say to you, peace, peace, where there is no peace. If you have not, like Simeon, if you will, taken this boy in your hands and said, this is the salvation that God has offered. Friends, there is salvation in no one else. He is the one that God sent into the world to be your Savior. Because you need saving. And you will hear that and you will say either I do. He's the Savior, this baby born in Bethlehem who would then grow up and die upon a cross in my place and for my sins and God would raise him from the dead and he would be alive forevermore. He forgives and his righteousness can be mine and I can be adopted into his family and, and you will take him. Or you will say, I don't need saving. Yeah, I ain't perfect, but I'm willing to go before God and plead my own case. Don't do that. Don't do that. Christmas it is a a gift from God that every year we are reminded if we will get past all the lights and even on our Christmas tree at home, I love our Christmas tree at home, but I get to looking at all the ornaments, and it's Santa here and Santa there, and you have to kind of look around. Where's our, where's, oh yeah, there's the manger ornament. There he is, there's Jesus. We do have a cross at the top of ours. But if we can get past all the lights and all the, Christmas, and all the presents and all, Christmas is a gift every year to go. What is this all about again? Who was that baby born in Bethlehem, wrapped in cloths and laying, laid in a manger? Who, who was he again? What was this all about again? And those of you who will have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will go. It's like take all the accoutrements of Christmas and... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world and sent his son for sinners like you and me. That's what Simeon said. This boy, salvation. This boy. Some will rise, but on this boy, some will fall.
which will you do? Let's pray. Oh God, we bless you for the love, for the love you have shown towards us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You could have left us in our sin. You could have left us in our darkness. But oh no. You came. You personally came. Your son became one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. For our salvation. Father, if there's any here who've never put their faith in Jesus to be their Savior, would you do what only you can do right now in their hearts? Would you shine the light of your grace and mercy that they might see your glory, see their sin, and see Christ, your Son, the Savior of the world, and they would humbly turn to him, asking for forgiveness, thanking him for what he's done, asking that he would be their Savior and their Lord. We will pray this in his strong and wonderful name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.